And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 71. Certainty in a world of doubt. We are racing to the end of this year and racing to the end of this book. And uh, the title of this weekend's message is Darkness Creeping. A couple days before Thanksgiving this last week, we, uh, Nancy and I had five of our grandsons. We've got nine grandkids, seven grandsons. We had five of them hanging out with us for a couple nights to get us ready for Thanksgiving. And uh, if you guys know how that goes, <laughs> then go well. But, uh, but there was five of the grandsons there, and, and they're from ages four to eight. And uh, one of the little four-year-olds was going to the bathroom. And you know how now the sun seems to be setting much earlier. It gets darker in the house quicker. And uh, he was going to the bathroom. He looked down the hallway and looked into our room, and he got scared. He came back around. We said, hey, what's going on? He said, there's, he said, Grandpa, there's something scary in there. <laughs> oh, there. There's nothing in there. And apparently he'd looked down there, and he probably saw a shirt that was draped over a, a chair or something like that. So I got him and the rest of the grandsons there together. He says, let's go and explore. Let's see what's, what's in there. Let's go in there. So I said, let's go. So we went in there and we walked into the room. I didn't turn the light on. I walked almost all, you know, all the way into the room with the lights still dark in there. And they're right behind me. I turn around and go, Aah! And they screamed at the top of their lungs. And Nancy's going, what's going on? What's going on? I mean, they, it was ear piercing, their, their screams. And they ran, ran out of the room. And, and they had a great time. Well, maybe it was me that had the great time. How many are thinking more that like grandpa had a good time? Yeah, yeah, grandpa got a kick out of that. And so like the day later, this little dude did that again. He's, he's getting dark and he's looking in my study and he goes, grandpa, there's something scary in there. And where do you come from, dude? Where you talk? He's like, okay. And, uh, and then, anyway, I got them all gathered up. I said, go in there, let's, let's check it out. We'll, we'll see what's in there. So we walked in there again. Got all the way into the room. It's still dark and I went, and they, they screamed to the top of their lungs. Did the same thing. You'd have thought they would have learned. Nope, nope, yeah, I'll be paying for their therapy, I know. But you know, it's interesting, I was thinking about this, that my grandfather, who lived in Flagstaff, used to do that to me. And he was a pastor. Yes, he was a pastor, and he would, you know, he would tell us stories about how there was a man living in the furnace, because the furnace in their home always made weird noises. Like, yeah, there's a guy, don't, go by the, don't go by the furnace, because, oh, he'll come out and get you, and things like that. But he would take us for walks. Their home was on the edge of the forest there, of the woods, and he would take us out for walks and then tell us bear stories. There's bears out here. Oh, there's, there's bear prints all around here. Oh, he'd take off running and leave us there, and we'd be we're chasing him. And that's why I'm still in therapy to this day. Yeah, but, uh, but I just, just wanting to pass on the legacy that my grandfather passed on to me, to my grandkids. And the reason why I say that, take a look at your sermon notes here. The reason why I said all that, we're talking about darkness creeping. Darkness and evil isn't something that jumps out at you from the dark. But it's something that is slow, almost unperceivable, as it little by little takes hold of our lives and destroys our lives. So if you're thinking that darkness is going to jump out at you, all of a sudden it's not going to do that. It's going to seep into your life. It's going to creep into your life. In fact, just as physical darkness can impair your vision, there is a spiritual darkness that can, can impair your spiritual vision. Gave you a ton of verses there. You can take a look at that. We're going to be looking at this spiritual darkness here in two more weeks in a little more detail. But what I want us to focus on here this morning is how it begins to creep into our lives and how it creates within us a kind of a spiritual declining uh, to our lives. The incidents that happened in the, the physical dark, the nighttime in this text, are going to show us how this condition of spiritual darkness or spiritual decline can creep into our lives 
and what Jesus has come to do about it. So spiritual decline, and you're going to see in our study that it starts with complacency, complacency about God, and then it goes to compromise, then from complacency to compromise to a kind of collaborating with the enemy, and then before long there's cynicism and criticism, and that's kind of the path it takes as it takes hold of our life and brings destruction. We're going to read the text completely through, and then we'll take a look at the sermon notes and kind of walk through there. But let's first pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So God, we, we love your presence. And uh, we know that intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. You sent your son into the world to be the light of the world, to dispel the darkness of sin and suffering and, and sorrow and death by reconciling us once and for all back to you. And so we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, teach us, teach us how we can walk in the light of the gospel of the glory of our Savior Jesus, protecting us from darkness, darkness creeping in, this uh, spiritual decline happening in our lives and so that we can experience more and more of the fullness of life that only Jesus can give. We pray this in his glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Let me begin reading chapter 22, starting in verse 35. Now, keep in mind, this is part of that upper room discourse. We're just hours away from Jesus being betrayed, arrested, and he's going to be hanging on the cross for us. And, um, and so in last week, we saw the institution of, of uh, communion the Lord's Supper, and now this is all still part of that, verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword, sell his cloak and buy one. Why in the world would he say, get a weapon? That's what he's saying. You better be packing some heat. Okay? That's, uh, that's, that's somewhere in the Greek there. <laughs> so you better be packing heat. Why would he say that? Because it's about to get ugly. It's about to get ugly. That's what he's saying. He's warning them. And in fact, I mean, he's, uh, it, it, it's just, it's really quite interesting. And so he says, you better buy one, you better buy a sword. Verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. This, so he's kind of given the reason why this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He's talking about himself. He's going to be treated like a sinner, like a transgressor. He's going to be hanging on the cross for you and I, for our, for our sins. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. This is Old Testament prophecy going to be fulfilled. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Isn't that interesting? Something to reflect on. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but... But obviously, he's, he's almost showing us that there's an appropriate use for uh, protection and uh, having a weapon or, or whatever it might be. And so, but look at verse 39. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, that's another important point here, as was his custom, uh, he would come to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. So this was the place where he prayed. And so we're talking about habits of grace or spiritual disciplines. So it was, a, it was a habit of grace for Jesus to do this, to go to the Mount of Olives and to pray. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I mean, that's, that's pretty significant too. He's just saying, if you are not practicing spiritual disciplines, if you don't have habits of grace, your prey for the enemy. You're going to be taken out. You're going to yield to temptation. You're going to give way. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a great prayer, by the way. I teach that to folks all the time. If you're struggling with, with whatever it might be, your career has collapsed, you're struggling with cancer, you're walk, going through divorce, whatever it might be, that's a great prayer. 
God, let this cup pass for me. Change my circumstances. Help me work through this, but not my will. Your will be done. So if you're, you're battling cancer, I'm going to pray, God, heal them of cancer. And I'm going to keep praying that until he either heals you or takes you home. So I'm going to ask boldly, but I'm going to surrender completely because I trust his loving, wise control of our lives and of your life. Does that make sense? That's just a good balanced prayer. Ask boldly, surrender completely. You can trust him. That's what, what Jesus is modeling here for us. Great prayer. And, uh, and, and notice what it says here in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So Jesus is overwhelmed with anguish as we will see here in just a moment. And there's an angel that shows up and strengthens him. Now, what's fascinating about this is that when you study through the scriptures, there are three kinds of angels. There are uh, military angels, there are messenger angels, and then there are uh, ministry angels. This is a ministry angel that has come to minister to him. Now, you don't wanna be preoccupied with angels but I'm just bringing that up. Who knows, you know, only God knows what's going on behind the scenes, and oftentimes when we're being ministered to, uh, that could certainly be happening. That's what's happening here, here with Jesus. And then in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's a, it's a real spiritual condition that happens to people that are in extreme anxiety. We'll talk more about that later on. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. There's another key phrase, sleeping for sorrow. If you don't deal with the sorrow in life, it's gonna make you, it's gonna wipe you out, it's gonna take you out, it's gonna make you apathetic and complacent about your relationship with God. Because over time, you take enough hits in life and, and there's so much sorrow and suffering and sickness and and all of that sin that we struggle with, that if I don't process it through spiritual disciplines, habits of grace, it's gonna overwhelm you. It's gonna take you out. That's why he's, he's, he's pointing this out. Remember, Luke is a doctor, found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to them, why are you sleeping? Rise. Shake off this apathy, this lethargy, this complacency, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Process these things, these hits that you're taking. Realize you're gonna be unprepared for the future if you're not practicing spiritual disciplines, if there's not some way you're connecting with God regularly. You're not gonna have the spiritual equity to draw upon so that you can face the difficulties of life. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And, at one, and, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. I, I find that, uh, although this is a very tense moment, I find that a bit humorous because it's almost like he's slicing and dicing and asking at the same time. You get that idea here? It's like, Lord, shall we whack? Shall we use our sword on them? He, just, he was going for the guy's head, by the way, and I think he got his ear. The guy was ducking out of the way and went, whoop. So it's an interesting scene here. So maybe he should have asked and then responded. No, don't be responding and while you're asking, but it's, it's fascinating here. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. This is where I got the title of the message, power of darkness. This is when darkness reigns, as some translations would say, darkness creeping, darkness creeping. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And this is also an important point here. And Peter followed at a distance. 
not careful, we find ourselves following Jesus at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else uh, saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter had never been more loved in his life than what he had experienced in Jesus, and yet he had denied Jesus three times, and then his eyes met Jesus' eyes. really a significant moment. He's going to show us, he's going to teach us what real godly repentance is. There's, there's worldly repentance, there's godly repentance. You see the worldly repentance in Judas, you see, more of a, you see certainly godly repentance in, in Peter because look, look how he, he responds. And Peter remembered the saying... And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Interesting. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Keep in mind, this is the God of the galaxies. This is our Savior. Came to redeem us. Mocking him, beating him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, referring to himself, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord to us this weekend, this morning. So darkness is creeping in. Let me give you four characteristics to look for. You can examine your own life as we walk through these. They get more intense. They're, uh, they're progressive. They're interrelated. And they get more intense as we work down the list. And so darkness is creeping in when we are sleepy rather than disciplined about our habits of grace. It's called complacency. And there's complacency in our life about practicing spiritual disciplines, verses 39 through 40. And he came out and went as was his custom. What you see about Jesus, I love this about Christ, is that it it says over and over that Jesus regularly withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He connected with the Father regularly. He knew through his habits of grace, spiritual disciplines, really how to do that. And and so he he leads the disciples, but these guys aren't doing the same that he's doing. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. Let me emphasize that just for a moment. If you don't have a steady practice of spiritual disciplines, I'm telling you, you're going to be taken out. You're going to be taken out. There's no way you're going to be able to survive. That's the severity of what he's warning us here. These guys are sleeping, and when you become complacent, no big deal. I don't need to go to church. I can be a Christian on my own. When you start thinking those kind of thoughts, you're already on your road out. You're on on dangerous ground. Verses 45 through 46, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. 
Our ability to work on the sorrow of our hearts, the devastation of life, we take a beating in life. I don't know if you've noticed lately, life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is painful. You're going to take some hits, and if you don't process that stuff, you're going to be carrying that baggage around with you the rest of your life. You've got to process that. That's why we, get, we gather regularly here to process the stuff in our lives so that we can find healing and hope and health in our Savior Jesus. But found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise, shake off this apathy, this complacency, and pray that you may not enter temptation. One of the cross-references that's been a, really a good verse for me for years that's helped me to stay on course with my spiritual disciplines is Romans 12, 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That's your job. It's your job to keep your heart on fire for Jesus and to, and to say, hey, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to experience you. Now, here's what I, let me give you some thoughts as it relates to our habits of grace, spiritual disciplines, um, uh, let, me, let me ask you to, to do this real quick. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say habits of grace, spiritual disciplines. Turn to the folks sitting next to you and ask them what's their favorite habit of grace or spiritual discipline. If they don't know what that is, then you tell them what yours is and maybe they'll understand more clearly what, what habits of grace are. Real quick, do that. So do you have a favorite? And typically our favorites would be those things that stir up our appetite for God. You need to be able to find those things that stir up your appetite for God, your passion for Christ. And uh, habits of grace, obviously this is a habit of grace, what you're doing here when we come together regularly. But you also need to find time in his word and in prayer and then hanging out with other Christians, sitting across the table, talking, discussing things with them. And... um, and here's some thoughts as it relates to this. We always make time for things that we value most. Would you agree with that? We always, we always make time for the things that we value most. Now, regardless of what you say, you may tell me that church and Bible study and prayer and connecting with other Christians is important to you. All I got to do is look at your life. And your life is going to actually tell me what you value most. So the things you value, you prioritize. The things you prioritize, you practice. And you will always... Make time for those things that you value most. Your passion for Christ is your spiritual thermometer. Your best defense is a good offense. Why is that? Because sin sin is what you do when you are not satisfied with God. That's why I didn't put this on your notes. You can write it down. You've heard me say it many times before. Psalm 51.12, David's repentance psalm, Psalm 51.12. Remember what he says there? Restore to me the what? The joy of my salvation. It wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation, and then he sinned. Things look pretty good out there in the world when our heart's not filled up with Christ. We set ourselves up. That's why he's saying, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Habits of grace are a means to keeping our hearts satisfied with God. What does that mean to keep our hearts satisfied with God? And by the way, it's more than when we do habits of grace than going through a checklist. Okay, I did that. I read my Bible, prayed, went to church. Hmm, Got that? No, you didn't. It's got to go much deeper than that. It's really about keeping your heart satisfied with God. What does that mean to keep your heart satisfied with God? This is what it means. It means seeing and savoring. What I mean by seeing and savoring, it, it means um, seeing and savoring the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what he's doing in your life and what he's going to do in your life. But it's seeing and savoring because it's an intellectual pursuit. It's studying of God's word. But it's also not just your head, but it involves your heart. It's existential. It should captivate you. It should get a hold of your heart. There should be times when you're studying God's word. It just comes and it, it captivates your heart. You're, you're overwhelmed. You begin to see Christ in ways beyond you've seen before. His love is, overwhelms you. And so 
Habits of grace is keeping our heart satisfied with God, keeping your heart satisfied with God is seeing and savoring the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done, and you do that until he becomes more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than anything else. I've, uh, I'm, I'm a strong believer in the fact that the things you daydream about in your spare time are the things that you are ultimately living for. I'm talking about patterns here, things that, you, that are patterns of things that you daydream about. If you were to listen to your daydreams, it would tell you a lot about what, what, where you find your sense of, uh, of hope and joy. Where are, what are the things you habitually think about in your spare time to get joy and comfort? There are things that you go to in your heart and mind to get joy and comfort. Spiritual disciplines helps to recalibrate our hearts, to put our hearts on Christ, and we go to him in our spare time. We daydream about him because he becomes our greatest delight. We love him. We love his presence. We enjoy him. And in those moments of, of interacting and thinking, you should be thinking deep thoughts about your Savior and how much he loves you. He should be ravishing your heart it would be like this. There should be moments when the light of his mercy, how many would agree that he's merciful? The Bible says it over and over again. So the light of his mercy begins to dispel the darkness of guilt and shame over your past sins. So you're having an encounter with God. This is not just wishful thinking. When I talk to you about encountering Jesus and spending time with him through habits of grace, I'm talking encountering and knowing and experiencing the God of the galaxies who's made it possible through his shed blood on the cross so that we can have access into the throne room of God. We can know God. Not just know about him, but we can know him. We can encounter him and his mercy dispels the darkness of guilt and shame in our lives. Sometimes we're not even in touch with that. We don't realize how much that drives our lives. It is the light of his compassion that dispels the darkness of past hurts. I wouldn't even bother to ask how many have have past hurts. We all do. How do we typically deal with them? Sometimes we don't deal with them really well, but I'm telling you, he's a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. The light of his compassion and comfort can dispel the darkness of past hurts. It's the light of his love that dispels the darkness of fear, worry, and anxiety. There's times that I'm just stressed out, overwhelmed by life. I can spend a few moments with him and his word, and God will begin to speak to me, and the light of his love begins to dispel the darkness of that fear. His perfect love chases away the fear. It it, it truly happens. It can happen for you too. It's the light of his presence that dispels the darkness of loneliness and abandonment. It's the light of his grace that dispels the darkness of, of despair, hopelessness, and helplessness. So, so let's reverse the order here. So, so if, if you're experiencing despair in your life right now or helplessness and hopelessness, it's because you're not living in the light of the grace of God. And that's available to you. If you're experiencing loneliness and abandonment, it's because you're not living in the light of his presence. If you're experiencing the darkness of fear, worry, and anxiety, it's because you're not living in the light of his love. If you're experiencing uh, the past hurts or like baggage that you're carrying around and adding to it in your life, it's because you're not living in the, in the light of his compassion and comfort. And if you're experiencing guilt and shame over past sins, it's because you're not living in light of his mercy, his mercy for you. And so spiritual disciplines is about connecting with, with the true and living God that we can know him and he transforms our hearts. He loves us. No one loves you more. No one loves you more than him. And so, I, okay, I gave you a little bit of the solution to that one. There you go. So darkness is creeping in when we are sleepy rather than disciplined about our habits of grace, complacency. But the next one it moves into is more compromise. When we follow Christ from a distance and warm ourselves at the fires of this world rather than the fires of God's love. So we follow Christ from a distance and warm ourselves at the fires of this world rather than the fires of God's love. Compromise, that's what we see 
so we see all the disciples sleeping, but now we see Peter, what is he doing? He's falling at a distance and he's warming himself with the fires of the world rather than the fires of, of the love of Christ, verses 40, 54 to 60, and then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Let me read to you a quote. This is from Richard Lovelace. I'll read it slow because it's a little bit, his language that he uses is a little bit hard to track with, and I'll try to ex explain it as we walk through it. It's a good quote to meditate on and think about. This is what he says. It is an item of faith that we are children of God. It is an item of faith that we are children of God. There is plenty of experience in us against it. In other words, there's a lot of things that happen in our lives that sometimes we even question. Am I really a child of God? Both sin and suffering. The faith that surmounts this evidence that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources is actually the root of holiness, holiness, wholeness. We are not saved by the love we exercise, but by the love we trust. The writer here, this is Timothy Keller from his book on prayer or on intimacy with God. This is what he says. When Lovelace speaks of warming oneself at the fire of God's love, he is describing what it means to meditate on the righteousness we have in Christ through his sacrificial death. If we don't meditate on that until our hearts are hot with assurance, we will steal love and acceptance from worldly achievements, beauty, and status. So, so what does that mean to warm yourself at the fires of this world as opposed to warming yourself at the fires of of his love. It means that you find a greater amount of significance and security and, and, and acceptance in created things more than the creator. That's compromise has, has taken hold of your life. So you got complacency because you're not keeping your heart fired up for Christ. You're not going to him to, to get that sense of identity and security and significance in him. So you're looking, you, you'll start naturally looking Elsewhere, Peter here was giving more weight, it sounds crazy, but Peter is giving more weight, significance, and glory to what the servant girl thought about him than his Savior thought about him. It's, he's people-pleasing. It's called codependency, whatever you want to call it. It's interesting, we had, uh, we had less people over at our, our place this, uh, this Thanksgiving had a lot of people, but we had about 60. Typically, we have about 70 to 100 that come over to our home on Thanksgiving, and uh, a lot of relatives, ton of relatives. And it was interesting as I was interacting with the relatives, some that I only see maybe once a year, is that I had uh, a couple of. Uh, let, let's let's just keep this between us right now, okay? Is that okay? <laughs> so I had two. I had a couple relatives say something to me that was kind of stinging, kind of stung me. And then there's, we've, got, we've got relatives that attend Desert Breeze, and I'm not going to tell you who they are because they're all mic'd, and if you say anything negative about me, they're going to come after you. Okay, I'm, not, I'm just kidding there. But we do have, I do have a lot of relatives. It was none of those relatives, okay? But it could be those that they might listen to this, and I'm cool with that. But, but, as, but it, it was stinging to me, and as I began to reflect on that, and I had those, you know how you have those brain debates? You go, why did they say that? And that really hurt. And you go back and forth, and what's going on? And uh, went back and forth. And, and, then, and then it dawned on me what I was teaching this weekend. I go, well, that was a good opportunity to apply this uh, to my life. And, I, and, and so the more I began to think about it, the way I worked my way through that was that I began to realize, why would I be so concerned about what they think about me or say about me when I have the only eyes in the universe that matter look at me loved me, adores me, gave his life for me, thinks I'm more valuable than all the wealth in this world. Why, why would I struggle with that? And that's how I was able to kind of work through that. And then the more I began to work through that, the more I realized, well, maybe I was just really hypersensitive. And I'll bet they probably didn't even know what they said. In fact, I know they didn't. And they didn't even mean anything by it the more I began to process and work through that as God began to bring healing to my heart and I began to realize maybe that's more about me and a past wound. And the more I began to explore that, the more I realized, yeah, there's kind of a hypersensitivity. It could be kind of a sunburn, something from the past that hasn't been completely resolved. 
And my tendency would be to try to take it out on them when really it's more about me, but it didn't happen until I had to come back to Christ and begin to find my sense of identity. I've got to warm myself at the fires of his love and quit trying to warm myself at the fires of this world. That, that his, what he says about me and how much he loves me is, is, is enough. Believe me, it is enough. And it's unbelievably healing. And it restores our lives. And so, that's, that's the second one. So you've got complacency, you've got compromise, and now you've got, it's gonna get really quiet in here because it's gonna get harder because you've got collaboration with the enemy when God is a means to an end rather than the end. So you know that darkness is creeping in when God is a means to an end rather than the end. Collaboration with the enemy. Verses 47 through 52, Judas, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss and Jesus is arrested. I, kinda, I need to give you the context here. This is important to see. A week ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey declaring himself publicly that he is the new king of Israel, the Messiah, and the, the great fanfare, of course, you're familiar with that triumphal entry. And of course, what that means is the Jerusalem authorities now have to either kill him or they have to bow, bow to him. And either he has to take military political power or they will be forced to crush him. And so this puts the disciples in this dilemma. All the disciples know that they are running out of time. I mean, he told us to be, we better be packing some heat. This is gonna get ugly. What is this all about? All the disciples now know that they're running out of time. The train of thought is if, if, if I don't make friends with enemies of Jesus, I'm going to be imprisoned or killed with Jesus. Now remember when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, they're taking communion together practicing the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, remember he predicts a betrayer. You guys remember how all the disciples responded? You know that they're feeling uneasy about all of this. All of the disciples are saying, is it me? Is he reading my thoughts? Eee. Judas had that thought just like everyone else, but he acted on it. So Judas's sin is what? It's selling Jesus. Judas's sin is selling Jesus. Judas is the person who follows Jesus when it profits, but sells him off when it costs. Judas follows Jesus when it looks like it's going to, going to profit, or there's a chance of power or prosperity, but as soon as it looks like there's going to be a cost to this, he sells Jesus. That's the sin of Judas, and, and by the way, here, here, listen, listen, you gotta listen to this. Everybody look up here. When, when, when do we ever do that? When does that happen in our life? This is when it happens in our life. If you ever say, if you ever say, I will obey Jesus, I will follow Jesus, I will love Jesus if, 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 Whatever's at the end of the if is what you're really following and serving. What's at the end of the if, if my life goes well, if I get the career I've always wanted, if I get the date, if I get whatever it is, whatever's at the end of the if is, is your real God, and God is a means to that. You are selling Jesus. You are using Jesus. Jesus is a means to an end. That's what you're doing. That's, you're, you're, you're right there with Judas. You're doing what he's doing. Now, there are two different ways to come to God. When we come to God, there's two different ways. You can either come to God to serve God or you can come to God to get God to serve you. Those are the only two ways we, we typically come to God. Everybody comes to God in one of those two ways. And there's really no middle ground. It, it's one or the other. Ultimately, you're on one side or the other. And, and, and they're two completely different ways of relating to God. And, and the people who adhere to those two different approaches to God sit side by side in church and look exactly the same. They look exactly the same. They read their Bibles together. They go to church. They pray. They, they live according to the Ten Commandments. And they look exactly the same as long as the sun is shining in their lives. 
But when a storm comes up and the storm begins to rage, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between people that Jesus is a means to an end or Jesus is the end. It's how they respond to their difficulties. See, this is not the sin of an outsider. This is a sin of the insider. This is, this is the sin of people who are active in church. Judas is an apostle. Jesus doesn't say, do you betray me with a slap? He doesn't say that. He says, do you betray me with a kiss? This is somebody who is up close and personal with Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Is your happiness, is your happiness from God more than it is in God? So that's the test. When difficulties come, is he a means to an end or is he the end for you? And regardless of what goes down in your life, man, you're serving him. You're gonna love him. You're gonna make him known. Great example of that is, is Job. Remember Job, the whole book, Old Testament book, verse one of Job, Job was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. What did Satan say to God about Job? Does Job fear God for no reason? What was he saying? He's saying to God, Job's using you. Take all of his stuff, level him, and he'll be cursing you till he dies. Isn't that interesting? By the way, let me just say this. Let me say this, that whatever we get from God, is nothing, is nothing compared to God, to knowing him, to experiencing, experiencing him, intimacy with him. Because believe me, if you have intimacy with him, if you know the true and living God, you can face anything. You can face any losses. In fact, your attitude will be, hey, bring it on. Because if this is for my good and his glory, bring it on. Here, God, here's my life. I surrender my life to you. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. God, I give you my life. Listen to what John Piper says in A Hunger for God. He says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. So I'm just telling you, God is so much bigger and so much more satisfying than anything that life has to offer. Some of you still don't believe that and you're gonna go out of here and you're gonna continue to live how you live, chasing after all the things in this world. And I'm telling you, eventually that will come to an end in your life and you're gonna be desperate like the, like the, the, the prodigal son in the pig pen and you're gonna come to your senses. I pray you come to your senses and realize, and realize only he can satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. So you got complacency, compromise, consulting, or collaborating with the world. And then, and then, by the way, when we talk about the enemy, collaborating with the enemy, I think I said, or with the world or whatever, we talk about the enemy. We're not talking about people here. We're talking about we have three enemies as, as Christians. You guys know what those three enemies are? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know uh, one of those three enemies that we have as Christians. Real quick, do that. How many would say that uh, our own sinful nature is one of those enemies? Yeah, we struggle with ourselves, our own sinful nature. How about Satan? We have an adversary. How about the values of this world, society? Yeah, those are our three enemies. So what we do is we find our sense of identity in those things as opposed to, to our Savior. Complacency, compromise, consulting, collaborating with the world. And then here it gets, it gets more severe right here when we mock. Darkness is creeping in when we mock rather than trust God in suffering when we mock rather than trust God in suffering. Criticism and cynicism, verses 63 through 71. Now, why are they mark, mocking him? Why are the soldiers mocking Jesus? Here's why. They're thinking, you can't be a prophet. You're too weak. In fact, there's this, uh, there's a famous incident in 2 Kings chapter 1 about Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet, and Ahab, the king of Israel, wanted to kill Elijah. Ahab sends 50 soldiers to arrest him. They come to a hill. Elijah's at the top of the hill, and the, and the captain of the soldiers says, man of God, 
come down. And Elijah looks down and says, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And what happens? That's exactly what happens. Down comes fire from heaven and they are all killed. Now that's a man of God, okay? That's a true prophet. Soldiers come to try to take a real man of God and they're destroyed. And now I'm sure that that's what these soldiers are thinking. You're not a man of God. Look at how we're beating you up and we're, we have our way with you. But, but what's fascinating about this is that the mockery of the soldiers ironically establishes the very thing that it's trying to undermine. When they blindfold him, they smack him and they say, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. Tell us who struck you. Tell us who you are. And the irony is as they attack his prophetic powers, they prove his prophetic powers because as they do it, they fulfill what he had already predicted. In Luke 18.32 of what we've already studied, Jesus says he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. He's already predicted that. This is the fulfillment of what he's already prophesied and predicted. Not only that, he predicted Peter was going to deny him down to the rooster crowing. The mockery over his prophetic powers actually proves his prophetic powers. Not only that, it proves he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets because in Isaiah 56, Isaiah predicted the coming of a suffering servant to do redemption. And in one of the prophecies, the suffering servant says, I offered my back. This is Old Testament prophecy. I offered my back to those who beat me. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Very specific. In other words, they looked at the apparent senselessness of Jesus' suffering. They looked at his weakness. They looked at his vulnerability. They looked at everything going wrong, and they mocked. They said, God doesn't work like this. You can't be the savior. You can't be bringing salvation. Let's apply this to our lives. What do we learn from this? There's a natural darkness that when we look out and we see the darkness in the world, we see, we see tragedies, we see suffering, we see the evil and things like that. What do we, we typically do? Part of our sinful nature is we mock, we say, there can't be a God. God wouldn't allow something like this. If there is a God, he must be very unloving or he's unwise or he's just not very powerful. They mocked and they missed the greatest act of salvation, love, wisdom and power in the history of the world because it didn't fit into their little categories. If God can take the senselessness and tragedy of Jesus' life and turn it into something cosmically wonderful, our salvation, our full salvation, and when you walk out the implications of that, it's breathtaking. If he can do that, then we know he's told us that at the end of time, at the end of history, he will do the same for all of history. And if he can do that for all of history, he can do that for your life and my life. No matter how dark it gets, no matter what kind of suffering and sin we have to go through and struggle with, he can make that work for our good and his glory. That's what it's telling us. I love the quote from, it's in the Brothers Karamazov. It's written by Dostoevsky. Listen to what he says here. I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man, that in the world's finale, 
at the moment of eternal harmony. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened with men. As you've heard me say before, everything sad will come untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been lost. Quite spectacular. How is that going to happen? Here's the last point. The light of the gospel of Christ dispels darkness. Verses 35 through 38, he will be numbered among the transgressors. That's what Jesus said. And then we see the anguish in the garden. What is the anguish in the garden? What is Jesus facing? Something shocked Jesus in the garden. Physicians will tell you it's rare, but it's possible. It's shock that can actually bring uh, blood out of your capillaries and into your sweat. He's sweating blood, severe anxiety. Something happened to him that shocked him. The Son of God was astonished. And, And he also says in the book of Mark, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, which is a way of saying, I am under such crushing weight, such a crushing horror right now that I'm not sure I'm going to even make it to the cross. I feel like I'm going to die right here. That's really what he's saying. I love what one great commentator of the Gospels, how he puts it here. He says, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety of Jesus was not just shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It was rather the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. What was he experiencing there? He was experiencing hell for you and I. What's, what's the cup when he says, let this cup pass from me? In the Old Testament, the cup always means God's judgment, God's justice. I mean, just think about, about this for a moment. What is the consequence of our sin against God? The loss of relationship with God. That's what hell is. Hell eternally separated from God the loss of relationship with God. The father turned his face away from his son so we could boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. The father turned his face away from the son so that he would never, ever have to turn his face away from you and I. That's, that's what's going on with Jesus. So Jesus took the ultimate darkness for you. Here's your next fill in the blank. He took the ultimate darkness for you, consequences of your sin, the wrath of God, so that you could live in the light of the gospel of Christ that will never go out. You need to change one of the cross-references there, Luke 23, 44, not 24, 44, but it's 23, 44. That's a quote from the next chapter. It was now about the sixth hour. It was noon, brightest part of the day, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So it's symbolic to him taking the sin of the world and the Father turning his back on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us. All of your sins were placed upon Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we can have all of the acceptance, security, significance we'll ever need. To the degree you believe it, next point on your notes, Captivated by it is to the degree the darkness of your own heart will begin to lift. See, this is what eliminates the complacency, the compromise, the collaborating, consulting with the enemy, the criticism, the cynicism about your life. I mean, you just learn to rest in him. You trust him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus Christ. It's intimacy with God. It's intimacy with God and knowing God and walking with God that dispels the darkness of these things in our life. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And because of Gethsemane, because of the cross, we can know he feels our every pain. Not only does he feel our every pain, he hears our every petition and never takes his affectionate eye off of us. So how can we have that? Well, here's, we've got to know the difference between Judas and Peter. 
You've got to know the difference between worldly repentance and godly repentance. Here it is. This is where we end. Worldly repentance is sadness over the pain sin has caused me. That was Judas. He went out and hung himself. And I see people do that all the time, maybe not literally hanging themselves, but they hang themselves on, on addictions and relationships and all of these other things to try to escape the guilt and shame that we all must face and deal with. Our guilt and shame is a result of our sin against a holy, righteous God. But if we will turn to Christ as we see that Peter does, godly repentance is sadness over the pain sin has caused God. That was Peter. And you see the distinction between worldly and godly sorrow or repentance in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. But verses 61 through 62 in our text, remember what happened? That when he betrayed, he denied his Savior for the third time. The rooster crows and their eyes met and he went out and wept bitterly. But it also says, and, and he remembered the saying of the Lord. He remembered what the Lord had said to him. What, was the, what did the Lord say to him? I, I looked that up and I found this really fascinating because it's really basic gospel. He says in Luke 22, 31 through 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demands to have you and that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay, now listen to me. Everybody look up here. We're almost finished. This is what he's saying here. He's saying, Peter, you are more sinful than you ever dared to think, but you are more loved than you ever dared to dream. I'm praying for you. And when you repent, when you get back up and you turn back to me, I'm going to use you as a leader. I'm going to use this, this brokenness in your own life and I'm going to fix that and bring healing and wholeness and healthiness so that now you can touch many other people's lives. That's really what he's saying, but it was because of his repentance. The Holy Spirit convicts us not to shame us, but to woo us to freedom, to greater levels of intimacy and maturity in God. And it, it's not our repentance that brings Jesus' love. It's Jesus' costly and indispensable love that brings that brings the repentance. He tells him that beforehand. I'm praying for you. I'm for you. I love you, Peter. Romans 2, 4, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's a broken and contrite heart that God does not despise. It tells us that. David said that in Psalm 51, 17. What's a broken and contrite heart? It's godly repentance. It's a heart that knows how little it deserves and yet how much it has received how lost and yet how loved you are. And that's what transforms your heart. And that's what we're going to talk more about next week. We're going to talk more about that next week. But I want us to pray. Just spend a few moments in repentance here. And where are you on that list? Complacency, compromise, collaborating, or criticism, cynicism? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We confess and repent of our complacency, our compromise, our collaborating with the enemy, trying to get our sense of identity from created things rather than you, our creator. Even the criticism and the cynicism, when hard things happen in our life, we, we, we doubt your loving, wise control it creates all sorts of problems in our lives. Just take a moment, where are you on that list? First John 1, 8 and 9, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just, just agree with God. Whatever God has put on your heart this morning, however you feel like he's speaking to you, just agree with him. Say, yep, I see that, God. Change that. Transform me. I give that to you. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the ultimate darkness for us, the consequences of our sin and the wrath of God, so that we can live in the light of the gospel, of the glory and the beauty of who you are and what you have done for us, a light that will never go out and dis a light that dispels darkness. I, I just want to take just a, just a couple more moments here. What are you struggling with? What are you struggling with? I pray even right now that the light of his mercy would dispel the darkness of guilt and shame. Are you struggling with guilt and shame over past sins? I'm telling you, his mercy, his unmerited forgiveness can dispel the darkness of guilt and shame. I pray that the light of his compassion and comfort would dispel the darkness of past hurts. God, there are those that are here that have carried that baggage in their lives for years. I pray that your compassion and comfort would dispel the darkness of those past hurts. God, I pray that your love, the light of your love, would dispel the darkness of fear, worry, and anxiety. 
I pray the light of your presence would dispel the loneliness and abandonment, the darkness of loneliness and abandonment. I pray the light of your grace would dispel the darkness of, of despair, of hopelessness and helplessness. So God, you are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you, and when we are most satisfied in you, we are most protected against darkness creeping into our lives. Teach us, help us to keep our hearts fully satisfied in you, we pray in your son's beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.